Hello, bingers. I've got another great podcast to share with you today and another great guest. She's the host of the Crimes of the Centuries podcast. And if you haven't heard her there yet, you may recognize her voice from the Accused podcast. She is multi-talented, and I gotta say, I love her style. Please welcome Amber Hunt. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Good morning, Amber. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> this going just like the rest of my morning. I never have my phone in here, and I brought it in here because I was waiting for you to text me. And uh, oh, now, of course, somebody's calling. I should probably... Hold on. <laughs> Amber and I are, are both extremely technical, technically savvy. This has been a very smooth, smooth endeavor so far. <laughs> Hopefully that works. I put it on airplane, but I don't know if that means it's going to bu- bump you off. Oh, I don't know. Well, I can see and hear you now. Yep. Sounds like you've had an interesting morning. My, my morning was was equally messed up, except for mine was like all personal. Like my, my 16-year-old lost his car keys, which he discovered at the moment when he had to leave for school. And then we found out that they were in his girlfriend's car on the other side of town. And I also have a 10-year-old that I have to – it was just a super-duper fun morning. Well, cool. And you're talking to, uh, what, like history professors? What were, what were you doing? No, I was talking to a reporter in Columbus. About some history stuff, because you were the history lady. Apparently. <laughs> Which is funny, <laughs> because I never was, I wasn't really much of a history student. I just started, I started finally realizing that um, those people in weird clothes and corsets and uh speaking old-timey English, they were actually real people. <laughs> and then I got interested in it. <laughs> so. yeah, now I want to know why they were wearing that stuff. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, so tell us a little bit about yourself, Amber. Um, I, I was just introduced to you as I started listening to your podcast over the last couple of weeks. I'm very much enjoying it. I am a bit of a history buff myself, so I like the true crime history kind of uh, meshing together theme of the show. But uh, You've done you've done a lot of work before you were a true crime podcaster reporting and things. So can you share a little bit about who's who's Amber Hunt, where'd you come from, and then how did you end up making a true crime podcast on the Obsessed Network? Okay. I started as a writer, a really, you know, melodramatic preteen, sky is falling, we're all gonna die, uh, poetry writer. When I was um, a kid and my mom was always really supportive of my writing and I do these short stories and I still have a book. Then my mom got sick and she died of cancer when I was 12. And um, really from then on, I just became sort of fascinated in how people survive terrible things. And um, I started my junior high's first newspaper found that I really liked writing regularly, you know. So I stayed on journalism through high school. I was, you know, the 
newspaper editor my junior and senior years. And and I also, with the mom dying, had this real sense of like, time is finite, you know, uh, so mixed in with the normal teenage angst of, you know, what's the point of all this was also, oh shit, it's going to end soon, <laughs> you know? So I had um, a lot of motivation that, um, you know, a lot of my peers didn't have. So like I showed up at the local Metro newspaper when I was 16 and a junior in high school. And I said, hey, I'd like to get a job. And they were like, that's cute. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, uh, and I came back and I came back and I got a job. Um, I was a sports stringer my junior and senior years. So I've just always like, I've never accepted when people tell me I can't do something. And I've always felt this insane urgency to get things done. So the combination of that just meant I, I did a lot early. I started my own music zine in college, mostly because I was a little jerk because I didn't get a scholarship <laughs> I thought I deserved. And then they wanted me to write on the school newspaper. And I said, well, no, you didn't give me the scholarship. <laughs> so, right. so I started my own instead. And uh, my boyfriend and I at the time, he was a musician. So it was a music zine. Is, is, that, a, is that a term that is widely accepted in the the magazine world. I've never heard music zine before. What? All right. It, that, so that's a thing. That's a real. Yes, it's a thing. <laughs> I don't read much, Amber. Yeah, <laughs> 80s and 90s, you would have. So it would be like a, a small scale magazine. It wasn't a proper magazine on like that glossy paper. It was a zine. So it was much more independent in spirit. And and in production, because, you know, like I, I had to I was 17, 18 years old. I had to track down a, a, a newsprint facility that would print out my zine. You know, it was a really stupid idea, but it <laughs> launched my whole career because that zine ended up reaching like 10,000 circulation in the Midwest, which was a big amount, um, especially for some kid. At that point, working out of her dorm room college, um, or her college dorm room um, closet is what I'm trying to say. I I turned my closet into an office, shoved my desk in there, and that's where I would do my zine work. Because of the zine, I ended up getting hired as associate arts and entertainment editor at the Cedar Rapids Gazette when I was like 20. No business being there. Um, and after a couple of years, I think it was really, yeah, only like two years. I was like, you know, I really prefer writing to editing and, um, started going back to reporting jobs and covered my first murder in 2000 and pretty much have been covering crime ever since. Like, I'll be off for a stint here and there in my path, but I'm always drawn back. Who were you writing for when you were covering the murders and stuff? After the Cedar Rapids Gazette, I went to a small newspaper called the Port Huron Times-Herald in Michigan. It's about 45 minutes north of Detroit. And that murder in 2000 was a, a 
just a pivotal moment in my career because I was I was young and stupid and not jaded yet. So there were a lot of um, reporters that the crime happened sort of in between Port Huron and Detroit. So there were a lot of Detroit reporters covering this case, too, because it was basically on the border of both of our coverage areas. And it was a 16-year-old kid who had been shot execution style in the head while working at a pizzeria shop in this suburb. Really ridiculous, senseless crime. And three kids were arrested straight away. Two of them confessed. And it ended up being this case where I learned about false confessions because those two didn't do it. And the murder weapon was found with another pair of kids who had gone on a cross-country crime spree. So it was this huge clusterfuck of a case. And I broke a lot of stories simply because when the kids' friends and family said, you know, they didn't do it, I was the one who went, well, how can you say that? They confessed. Whereas the other reporters had been, they were already to their like, oh yeah, sure he didn't do it phase, (laughs) you know? Right. And I was listening. And so, and then it ended up that they hadn't done it. So it was sort of lucky that I was as green as I was. So because of that, and because I broke a bunch of these stories that ended up being, you know, prophetic that these kids didn't do it, I got a job at the Detroit Free Press, which was a huge leap. I went basically from a 30,000 circulation newspaper to 300,000. And then I covered crime and, you know, won some awards. Gannett, my boss, has been on and off with... I'm either like in good with everyone or on everybody's shit list. Like there's no in between in my (laughs) career. So there was a point where um, Gannett adopted this philosophy that things needed to be hopeful. And it's really hard to make a triple homicide hopeful. (laughs) Right. For whom? (laughs) So basically like my job was sort of obsolete because they didn't want crime stories. And I was a crime reporter. So I got really frustrated and applied for a fellowship at the University of Michigan, um, which was for mid-career journalists. Got it, uh, which was crazy. It's it's like winning the lottery for a journalist. And the um, the newspaper was like, you know, you're going to have a really hard time finding a job after that. And I was hired on at AP, and then I was recruited to the Cincinnati Inquirer by a former Detroit boss who knew that things didn't have to be hopeful all the time. And uh, and then I ended up here. So is that where you're at now, is in Cincinnati? Yeah, I'm in Cincinnati. And, the, and then the podcast Accused came about after Gannett had another brilliant moment, and they decided um, to fire everyone. <laughs> <laughs> So I had just given birth to my first kid, and I had just moved cross-country from South Dakota, where I was working at the AP, to Cincinnati. I had uprooted and moved, and um, and then G- Gannett decided everybody would be fired and you would all have to reapply for your jobs. So I did that, reapplied, got my job back. 
but was very shaken by it. So when this case came along that I thought was interesting, I was like, okay, I need to be comfortable telling stories in a different way. Um, and I thought that this one about Elizabeth Andes, a murder in Oxford, Ohio in 1978, might make a good podcast. Now, when I bitch about Gannett, they also have done many awesome things. And one of them was hiring Peter Batia, who is a Pulitzer-winning editor. He was brought in for um, to the Enquirer, and he he said, okay. He said, you know, yeah, let's try a podcast. And, um, and then it was number one on iTunes for like a week, which was amazing. It was, as far as I know, the first newspaper produced podcast to reach number one. That's all. And that was Accused, your first podcast. Mm -hmm. Yep. What year did Accused come out again? I started reporting it in 2015. It came out in 2016. So it it was a good time. It was after serial, obviously, but before everybody had a podcast, you know. Right. So it 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 hit at a good time. That's also uh, I wanted to ask you. You're talking all that you have all these connections to Michigan. Are you a Michigan native, or did you just end up there for your career? I ended up there. Um, my my ex husband had. Uh, he needed a kidney and he was from Michigan and he decided he wanted to go home. And I'm such a transient anyway. I was like, all right. <laughs> so I just moved to <laughs> Michigan. Um, then we divorced and then I bounced around some more. Michigan, I really loved, um, that area and I love Detroit and I love the, especially the people of Detroit. I mean, the things that they have gone through, um, and they, they, they come out invigorated like they 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 keep such faith and i'm not a religious person but it's kind of a beautiful thing to see in other people when when you know that that's what's getting them through you know um it's uh they're really amazing people but i don't want to live there again <laughs> i don't want to live right. there again <laughs> um i do like Cincinnati. This is probably the first place I've moved to where I settled in, and I was like, "Yeah, it kind of feels like home." Yeah, Cincinnati is a cool town. So I'm from, I'm born and raised in Michigan, still in Michigan, but other side of the state from Detroit. But same thing. Like Detroit's cool to visit. I wouldn't want to live there. I don't think I would ever want to be there. Cincinnati. I've been a couple times. I've gone to watch the Reds play at Synerg the old Synergy Field, which is always a fun trip. And I guess maybe I missed where are you originally from? I was born in Iowa. My parents divorced, remarried. I got bounced around a bunch. Basically, I, by the time I graduated high school, I had attended 12 schools in seven states. Oh, goodness. Yes. So it's, you know, you would think after several decades, I'd have some pat answer that I provide people so that I don't have to explain <laughs> this every time. But no. There is no where I'm from, really. I don't. Yeah. I don't have an answer. Gosh, why why the moving around? Was it just jobs or just new relations? What moved you to seven states in that amount of time? Well, pretty shitty childhood. That was part of it. Messed up afterwards. Yeah, I mean, because the parents divorced, and I mean, I can't even imagine this now. But um, when I was five, I had to choose which parent to live with. Um, 
and uh, my kid's seven. He couldn't make that. You know, I can't imagine putting that on a five-year-old, but that's... So there was a time when, like, I was living with my mom, and I guess I was a little shit, and I said, I want to go live with my dad. And she was like, all right, and she shipped me off to my dad. And then, then I had to choose... And then so I moved back with my mom and my stepdad, and he was post-Marines by then. And so he was trying to find civilian work. We went to Arizona. We were in Illinois for a bit. We ended up landing in Georgia for a while. So Georgia and Iowa are kind of my longest. As a child, and Michigan was my longest as an adult. Um, although I'm I'm coming up on Eight years here, so this is this is up there now too. You're creeping up there. You're 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 getting away from that that transient lifestyle. I am. Living. I'm trying. Do you plan to to stay settled in Cincinnati? I hope so. I hope this fucking house falls down around me before. <laughs> 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 I do not want to move again. Yeah. Done with the moving. Yeah. So getting back to your where you so you so you've, you've been a journalist your whole life and then through the the newspaper you created um the Q's podcast was wildly popular as you said all the way up to to number 1 which is quite quite a feat even in 2016 when as you said not you know everyone had a podcast then uh but a lot of us did it took right. to climb up for to number 1 through the you know thousands and thousands of podcasts uh is really impressive and then and then now you've through this pandemic and I I mean you kind of started in the middle of the pandemic, and I'm, and you're the second person I've interviewed in a couple of weeks that I think started a a popular podcast in the heart of the pandemic. But you've you've created your new show, Crimes of the Centuries, which I'm going to get into in a minute. But first, I want I, I first thing I noticed, and it might have even been Patrick that directed me to you. I don't remember how things work. There's too much going on in my life. I don't remember how I got to certain Understood. places. I won't remember you after we talk. No, I'm kidding. But <laughs> that's well, that's hurtful. Um, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I saw that the, the podcast is part of the Obsessed Network, and and I am a, and I'm obsessed with the Obsessed Network. I, I love Patrick and Jillian to death. So so, how did that connection happen? How did you go from you know newspaper reporter to this production through Obsessed? There were a couple things that happened at once. One is Accused was backburnered because of the pandemic. So when this when the world stopped, like not only. Was I not going into the office anymore and my kid wasn't going to school and we were having to figure out all this shit at home. But my professional life life was completely upended, too, because I wasn't working on this thing that had been my job for years now. And I didn't know if it was coming back. But by then we had a Patreon account. And the idea was that we were going to, you know, update people on the investigation. Well, you can't do that when you're not being allowed to investigate it. And I felt really guilty about that. And I was like, okay, so I'm going to just figure out something to do for the patrons so that they don't think, you know, we're like just stealing their money. Right. Right. So, um, which by the way, a third of it goes to the newsroom. It helps pay for interns, which I'm super proud of. Like I, I help pay for interns, you know? Right. But so right after the pandemic to sort of ground myself, I did this deep dive into the old archives looking at the Spanish flu and just really was like just amazed at how little was different. Like there were so many parallels, not just in the illness, but in, you know, 
people arguing about your personal responsibility um, versus government encroaching on your rights and all of this. It was all the fucking same. And then I came across a couple of headlines um, of big cases, and I thought, okay, you know, I could do like a historical crime for the patrons. So I did Murder of Mary Fagan, and um, let's see, I think I did Pearl Bryan pretty early, and I would just record these in my closet. Like, I'd research them, use the newspaper clips, uh, and record it in my closet and put it out on Patreon. And then Patrick Hines um, from True Crime Obsessed called, and he was interested in having me freelance edit Unjust and Unsolved with Maggie Freeling. And so I was totally on board for that, uh, especially because I was being furloughed. So it was like, great, you know, freelance work while I'm being... Income. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's great to eat food. So uh, I started doing that. And then I got really panicked that accused wasn't going to come back. And um, I've been... Luckily, the the nice thing about being so like aware of your mortality and and aware that time is finite, I've been very appreciative. So I've never taken it for granted that I had this dream job. But I was like, you know, you had to know the shoe was going to drop, right? You had to know it was going to end sometime. <laughs> but I've always been the type to try and create my own opportunities. So I told Patrick, I'm like, I don't know if they're going to cut me. I don't know what's going to happen. Like, do they need me anymore if I'm not doing the podcast? Am I overpaid for, you know, I don't know. So um, I told them I was thinking I would try and shop around this historical podcast idea. And he's and I said it just as a professional courtesy, you know, since you hired me as freelance, I'm just letting you know that I'm doing that. And he was like, well, let's talk about it first. (laughs) And so we did. And then. they sold it. And now I do that. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, it, it it's worked out really well. I do, um, on average, you know, it's usually about three episodes a month, the way the breaks, because I had to build in breaks. I do still have a full-time job. But I, like, I, I read at night. I'm reading a case. Uh, on the weekends, I write. And, um, you know, I carve out a couple hours during the week to record and do the ads and all that stuff. And it's just nice. And then at the start of the year, they told me I could do accused again. So I was like, woohoo, <laughs> both worlds. Nice. You get to do both. And now you're, and, and now if you hit the point where this is becoming a scheduling nightmare all of a sudden, I want to, this is me knocking on wood because uh-huh. I do that a lot. Um, <laughs> I am, a, I'm ahead in writing. So episode 22 dropped today. I'm writing episode 31, right? Oh, so you're well ahead. I'm, I'm a good chunk ahead. And then I'm contracted through October. Well, the heavy lifting with a Q should start in August, which is when I will be theoretically done writing the other episodes. So it should line up really well. I'm I'm so, I'm so jealous right now. So with Truth and Justice, my my other show, I'm I, I just just yesterday aired season ten, episode ten, and I'm done writing episode ten. Um, and so now I'm going to start writing episode eleven 
tomorrow for <laughs> and yeah. that's every week white knuckle like <laughs> my producer and I are like god damn it why do we do this every week yeah no that's terrifying and for me like everything is so carefully regimented that I have to get myself ahead because I don't I I have a kid I don't know what's gonna you know be thrown my way so I I have that's how I keep from panicking constantly yeah Oh, I totally get it. So, like, well, this show for True Crime Binge, I think, actually, I think your episode might be airing next week. Um, but normally, like, we, we usually have, you know, I'm the same way. I'll record five, six, seven episodes and have them in the bank to be able to go out. Truth and Justice is tough because it's real time crowdsourced investigation. So I can't get, you know, too far ahead. But it's, it's definitely every Thursday in my life sucks. Every Thursday. <laughs> it's like deadline day. I'm sorry. I'm trying to write, record, but. The nice thing with Accused is that all the sucky parts, they really are kind of condensed. Although, you know, it it is, it's hard to explain to people. My job, I'm paid like a regular reporter, but I'm not in the paper much. You know, I'm in a couple times a month with a column now. I am pulled out to do breaking news. Um, so we had a mass shooting and I'm brought in on that and stuff like that. But, um, uh, oh, I forget where I was going. This is how my life is now. Right. I'm sure it was something to do with the fact that, uh, you know, how it's tough to write stuff. And, but we oh, get it the, done. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's hard to explain to people, like, how you can spend a whole year investigating something. But my, right now, I am trying to find a specific man named Jimmy Johnson. That's that's probably a little difficult, you know. It's a fucking nightmare. <laughs> Given the <laughs> uniqueness of that name, I mean, gosh, how many Jim Johnsons can there be in the United States? I have sent out so many letters. I've made so many phone calls just trying to find this one guy who might not even be alive anymore. He was alive in 1996. I don't know if he's still alive now. <laughs> so, and and like all these calls and, you know, it, it's so labor intensive and without this time like i did season one i found a guy named steve green that the police couldn't find but i found him you know you found so him, right? yeah. so it you know to investigate these crimes properly it it does take time it's tough i'm going to specifically right now before we jumped on the zoom i'm looking for somebody from 1996 luckily a bit more of a unique name so I was able to track down pretty quickly where he's at with all the software and stuff that I use. But even with that, then you've got, okay, well, we found him. Here's 17 addresses that might be his. Mm -hmm. Here's 14 phone numbers that might be his. Here's 15 email addresses that might be his. And I can only imagine when you're looking for Jim Johnson, when you've got to do that times, you know, 400 people to figure out not only which one is them, but which contact is, is correct. It's exhausting. And and these poor guys, somebody uh, called me up the other day and he's like, I got your letter. I'm not the right one. <laughs> and I was like, well, thank you for letting me know. And he's like, good luck. <laughs> it's And it's so tricky because like when I'm doing like this dude I'm about to reach out to this afternoon to try to talk to, I'm always investigating a murder. So it's like when you find the wrong person, it's the most, uh, hey, were you, you remember when like. Did you ever have a neighbor that got stabbed to death? <laughs> what the fuck? No, I did not. I, <laughs> I think I, I didn't. remember I, that. Yeah. That was the wrong person. Why are you calling me? Yeah. 
My favorite, though, my favorite reaction will always be the people who I call who are the right people who like vaguely remember, but they're like, oh, that was so long ago. Which is such bullshit <laughs> because, because meanwhile, the person I called and asked about the murder that had nothing to do with it, like they are going to remember that as traumatic. The question of, you know, were you involved with this? Meanwhile, some some of the people I reach out to are like, yeah, my friend was killed, but I don't remember anything about it. And and that's why I'm like, okay, so now I'm going to put you on the suspect list. <laughs> right, right. That seems odd because, you know, you were right there. Like you yeah. saw it happen. <laughs> yeah. Seems weird you don't remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's all. I'm glad that you get to go. Did you uh, get to pick accused back up and keep going? But today we're here to talk more about Crimes of the Centuries, the new show. And um, you can break down a little bit about what it is. I mean, the, the, what I would describe it as you, you just pick these historical crimes from the centuries and and break them down. I just listened to the one for the case we're going to talk about today, the Ma Baker case, which was fascinating. Um, but can it give us a little breakdown of what people can expect if they're if they're tuning into Crimes of the Centuries? Well. What I like to do is find cases that were really big when they happened and or have had an impact that that we can still see today. So like the the very first case that I did was the murder of Mary Fagan, which is just a is a fascinating case in which a very likely, you know, wrongly accused man, a uh, Jewish man in Atlanta was lynched for uh, supposedly killing this teenage girl. And this case like helped lead to the uh, resurrection of the KKK. You know, it's fascinating to me how you can draw these lines between the cases. Some of the cases are um, still inspiration for uh, movies and stuff that come out to this day. You know, um, the Kitty Genovese case was it it has probably been a plot line of you know CSI and SVU and all the other acronym shows like 15 times one of the serial killers uh helped change how autopsies were conducted uh because before her uh you would have to get the the next of kin's permission to conduct an autopsy well, it's kind of hard to get that when that next of kin is actually the one killing all of her husbands. <laughs> right. You're not allowed to look. Right. It's just been really fascinating to me to see all the lines that you can draw. And and once I really did get it through my head that these are these are all just people, you know, it's it's not like the, the roads might have looked different, but it's the human nature isn't different we this is still a mother who loved her son or a you know i've just really enjoyed connecting a lot of dots that i didn't know were there to connect well and that's what kind of uh segueing into the the case we're, we're going to talk a little bit about today um which is one of your earlier episodes was it was the ma baker episode was like barker or i'm sorry ma barker yep was was two or three or was it i mean it was early Maybe five or six, but early. Single yeah. digits. Single digits episode. Yes. <laughs> but, but you know, you listen to that. I didn't know 
a lot about that case. I, you know, it, it, but I was immediately fascinated by your episode on it because it's bringing in. You're, we're talking about not only you know Dillinger and Hoover in the FBI. Didn't know that Ma Barker was the inspiration for the uh, the the bad lady in the Goonies. I mean, <laughs> there are some other places, but the Goonies really got me. Like, ah, oh, I can see that now. Yeah, Ma Fratelli. Yeah, yeah, but the um the the references you made early to this time period when when all this went on after you know 1917 after World War One when they the, when prohibition started. And then, you know, coming on the, on the tail of the Spanish flu that killed so many, you know, what was it 500,000 people or 700,000 people uh, in the United States? Yeah. Yeah. Somewhere in there, about half a million. Yeah. And, and, I, and I love the way you put it where, like, someone decided that in the midst of this horrible pandemic, we should outlaw alcohol. Yeah. Which, you know, in those, those parallels to, as you said, where you're connected, like, like, yeah, it's a different time, but people are the same. And you mentioned so, and I'm the same way. I mean, I, I think I gained, I didn't bet on a scale. I'd say I gained 20 pounds during the pandemic, just sitting on my ass and drinking uh, a lot, a lot more than, than I normally do. And so it's funny how that, you know, that kind of the, how prohibition was meant to, I guess, like lower crime, but in fact, it created like way more crime than ever was before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I love delving into that stuff and that's something that i couldn't really do in normal newspaper work but you're you're able to do it in podcasts i was able to do it in accused like you try and set the time period and put people in a place and so with crimes of the centuries i do that too and and i just try to explain it in terms that you know we can relate to so with the with the pandemic can you imagine right now there being a movement <laughs> to ban alcohol? <laughs> like it would be pandemonium. The the idea that they were trying to quell crime, which I get, alcohol is a common denominator in a lot of crimes, but to nobody respected the law. They thought it was stupid. It created mobsters. Um cops were on the take. It was just absolute chaos and definitely caused far more crime than it stopped. Yeah. And it's funny because like now, and then like we have the parallels, but then you've got the, you know, you know, the intersection of where things are going differently now, where now we have like the, we're seeing the exact opposite with like the legalization of marijuana in, right. in so many states. It's like somebody, it only took a hundred years from the time only of prohibition. A hundred years later, someone thought, you know, <laughs> we're we're putting a lot of people in jail and a lot of people are killing each other over this plant. What if we just make that plant not illegal anymore? And then all of a sudden, it's really not a problem. But it was the exact opposite back then where they, they you know, they try. Like, as you said, when you, when you said that, could you imagine if right now the government came in and said alcohol was illegal? I can't even fathom how that would be how people would react i mean because people are, are i mean good people people that are like you know i'm believe in science and i'm gonna do my part and wear my mat even even all like the best well-meaning people on the on the planet right now are like i'm so fucking sick of wearing masks and doing it. like i'm just just so over it i couldn't even imagine if they're like and by the way you can't have a beer when when you get home <laughs> 
I don't think that would go. I I was shocked when what was it just last year or a couple years ago when they made was it cigarettes? They they moved the age. Did you know this? They moved the age to buy cigarettes from eighteen to twenty one. No, I didn't. Federally, yeah, federally, they did that. So it's so imagine being. I always said I'm not a smoker, but imagine being I have been in the past the twenty year old smoker who's like all of a sudden it's like man. Now I got to go find a homeless person outside of the gas station to go in and buy cigarettes for me because I'm not I'm not old enough to buy them anymore. But I was last week. Anyway, just to, just to give you the kind of idea of you know how people were feeling back then. But can you give us kind of the beats of the Mob Barker case? Because like as I'm as I was I wasn't familiar with it. I became I, I it rang a bell once I once I heard you telling the story. But it's really more of a story about the corruption of Hoover and the FBI, to me, than it is about about Mob Barker. Right. Because really, you could pick any mobster to analyze. But I chose the Barker Carpus gang because it's just it's fascinating how it evolved into this mythology that we eventually learned wasn't true. But so the the. Basics are a woman named Arizona Clark gets married to a guy named Barker. She starts going by Kate, and then eventually we know her as Ma Barker. But she has um, several kids, four sons, and you know she she didn't have the strongest moral compass in the universe. Um, and she was a consumer of these detective magazines that were all the rage back then. And her kids, you know, started breaking the law pretty early. And bootlegging had a lot to do with that. Um, I mean, you had a a few things like kind of converging at once in the late 20s, which was, you know, there'd been prohibition. The stock market was coming down. So people hated bankers. People didn't trust police because the police in a lot of cities were on the take looking the other way for the mobsters. So her four kids went down pretty dark, you know, legal paths and uh, they would rob banks. They would hold people up. They'd get picked up here and there, um, put in jail. Mob would come out and say, you know, oh, he's a good boy. He made a mistake. You made a misunderstanding, whatever it was. She would always be on their side. And, and then at one point, they a couple of the guys had robbed a bank, and a sheriff came out to investigate the next day. He'd gotten a tip that there was a car that looked awfully similar to the one that was mentioned in the newspaper this morning, you know. And so the sheriff comes out, and he's just walking up to ask some questions. And two of uh, the gang members were inside the car. They just opened fire. And one of them was Ma Barker's son. And that crime was what sort of elevated them from nobodies to top of the most wanted list because it was completely senseless. Like, they did not have to do that. The guy was not a threat. They could have just driven away. So it was hideous. And a lot of people were like, you know, we've got to find these guys. And it so happened that John Dillinger, who had been declared public enemy number one by J. Edgar Hoover, uh, the longtime head of the FBI, 
Uh, he had just been killed by G-men, by FBI agents. And Hoover really was good at marketing the agency. He was good at, um, you know, getting newsreels out in front of movies. And he understood PR in a way that, you know, most people back then didn't have any comprehension of. So he was really liking the attention that um, this public enemy number one campaign had been getting the agency. The better the, the agency looked, the more people trusted it, the more they trusted it, the more power Hoover got. And then it, after this sheriff killing, and they also kidnapped a couple of rich guys in St. Paul, Minnesota, which was a really big no-no because they were living in St. Paul, Minnesota. And the deal in St. Paul was you were allowed to live there and the cops would know about it and you would pay off the cops if you were a bad guy. But the deal was you were not allowed to commit any crimes in St. Paul. That was the trade-off. They would protect you. You were allowed to live there, but you couldn't commit a crime there. And so the mob, the Barker Carpus gang kidnapped two rich dudes and successfully ransomed them off. And then the public was like, whoa, wait a minute, we've been looking the other way because we were told we'd be safe, but we're not safe. You know, they broke the rules. So you have this like merging of events. You've got Hoover looking for a new villain. You've got um, the Barker Carpus gang screwing up and breaking uh, this important rule that had been in place for decades. And so Hoover declared Ma Barker's sons, not Ma, but Barker's sons and Alvin Carpus, another guy um, in the gang, he, he declared them public enemy number one. He had a lot of number ones, by the way. There was never any like yeah. public enemy number four. Right, it was just number one. Yeah, everybody was number one. It's far more dramatic. So they, they're hunted people, their faces are everywhere, and eventually the FBI does catch up with them, and there is a huge shootout at a Florida house that Ma and her kid, Fred, I believe it was Fred, they were inside, and there's this huge shootout, and when the agents go in after everything is quieted, they, they see the sun, they're like, okay, we got him. But then they see this old woman next to him, and they don't know who she is. They figure it out based on fingerprints. And then the next day, all of the newspapers were running her photo huge because Hoover had said, oh, shit, we killed an old lady. We need to make her a villain. So, nice. <laughs> so she became the supposed mastermind of the entire gang. Like, she was depicted as the one who planned the kidnappings and the one who, you know, decided which banks to rob. And it was reported that she had a machine gun in her hands when she, you know, was killed. And then they made movies about, you know, her. And uh, Shelley Winters played her in some 1970 movie. And she's, you know, shown, like, on the side of a car spraying machine gun fire at, at federal agents and stuff. None of that was true. It was all created uh, retroactively to 
keep Hoover from looking like an asshole for having killing ordered an old lady. this. Yeah, for killing an old lady. Um, and then that was the story that I knew. So when I started reporting this out, I, I began, this has been one of the really fun parts of the podcast, is that I'll find a case I'll know peripherally, like I'll have heard nuggets about it. And then I dive into it. I'm like, oh, it's nothing like what I thought, you know. She she was no Ma Fratelli. She was some bumbling grandma who, uh, you know, gave donuts to the neighborhood kids. And one of the one of the gang members lady, later was like, she could barely plan breakfast. How would she plan a bank heist? So, yeah, that's the Ma Barker story. Yeah, and it's it's crazy because I mean, like I said, I w- I wasn't super familiar with it when you started telling the story. I'm like, oh yeah, I remember this is back. You know, the mobsters and the the old lady that was running, and then and then and then when you kind of reveal what was, and, and and this is not just like rumor and stuff. Like years later, the Freedom of Information Act allowed people to get the actual FBI files and find out they did, she wasn't on their wanted list. They didn't barely know who she was. They accidentally killed an old lady, and then. J. Edgar Hoover makes up this entire smear campaign to try to make it look not only like they were justified, but also that they did a that they took this 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 most wanted criminal off the street when she just happened to get caught in crossfire. It's super fascinating. As I've listened to a few a few other of your episodes so far, and and I'm really enjoy, enjoying it. As I said, I'm kind of a history buff and a true crime buff. Which is if you're that, then uh, Crimes of the Centuries is is uh, one you should check out. And with that, uh, I'm going to leave the listeners to go check it out. Her name is Amber Hunt. The podcast is called Crimes of the Centuries. Do go check it out. I'm certain it'll be your next big true crime binge. Thanks so much, Amber, for joining me. Thank you for having me. Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.